mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, to your health, we often hear reminders about the importance of donating blood, but donations of plasma are also essential to saving lives in their own way. This is International Plasma Awareness Week. Also this morning, drone technology is already used in a wide-ranging number of industries, and the next generation of drones are further expanding their capabilities and the types of applications for which they can be deployed. We'll take a closer look. And summer's over, but kids and adults can both stay active with upcoming programs through the Findlay YMCA. We'll tell you what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. Here is another reason to work remotely. In the aftermath of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people kind of like this working remote idea. And so a company's been struggling with this. Another reason to work remotely, it could significantly reduce your carbon footprint. Research out of Cornell University finds that remote employees have a 54% lower carbon footprint compared to traditional on-site workers, which makes sense if you really think about it. We don't have all of the cars on the road, people commuting back and forth. Uh, we don't, we're not um, using you know, burning energy to uh, operate an office and uh, so on. Even hybrid employees where you work at home part of the time, reduce their carbon footprint by up to 29%. The study indicates that commuting is the biggest contributor. Um, The findings suggest organizations should prioritize lifestyle and workplace improvements, according to the uh, folks who put this uh, research together from Cornell University. So I guess you can... You can try that on your boss if they want you to come into the office and you don't want to come in. So, well, I'm watching my carbon footprint. That's my... By the way, speaking of work, this is kind of interesting. A new survey. And again, we're coming up on the final quarter of the year. We start to get all of those year-end lists. According to the latest survey from the statistics company Statista. Statista? You pronounce that statista. Uh, The country whose people take off work the least. And you would think I my first thought was when I saw the headline, what country takes off work the least? My first thought was the United States, because so many places around the world get so much more vacation time and they are encouraged to take more and longer vacations um, to keep themselves fresh at work. And that's just a very different mindset than in this country. So I'm thinking, well, it's got to be the United States. No, just over half of South Koreans did not take any time off in the past year. Now, I guess I should qualify this. Apparently, they're looking at specifically sick days. Um, but uh, just over half of South Koreans did not take a sick day. In the past year, South Korean employers are not required to pay workers if they call out sick. So many don't, and that leads to uh, very little uh, uh, workplace absenteeism due to medical issues. 45% of Japanese workers 
did not call in a single time in the past year. 23% of Americans did not take a single sick day in the past 12 months. Um, Only 14% of Australians didn't call in. So Australia, the most likely to take a sick day. It is unclear if these numbers indicate fewer people are sick in these countries or if culture and employer compensation play a role. I would have to think they probably do, but interesting. Um, Again, speaking of work, after seeing a spike during the pandemic, breakfast cereal sales are on the decline. Um, Now that we are back to normal post-pandemic and we're not, you know, just hanging out working at home, at least not as often, uh, once again, we don't have time for that first meal of the day. On-the-go foods like granola bars and breakfast sandwiches are gaining steam, indicating that more people are rushing to grab something to eat in the morning. They're heading out the door. When families do choose cereal, they are increasingly more open to generic brands as opposed to the Kellogg's and the Post cereals. Uh, More Americans are choosing protein over sugar and carbs, which could also be uh, due to a focus on health. So that also leading fewer people to choose breakfast cereals. So not a good not a good time to be uh, working for Kellogg's, I guess. Um, Let's see what else is uh, going on here. The first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting And buzzworthy stories of the day, a new analysis of Google Trends data finds that the most accident-prone state is Arizona. And maybe it's because they're not having breakfast. You know, you're not getting a good start, so you're kind of lethargic. You're kind of dragging a little bit, more accident-prone. In Arizona, the most accident-prone state in the union. Uh, Again, this analysis of Google Trends data found that uh, top accident-related searches in the clumsy state of Arizona include urgent care, minute clinic, emergency room, and sprained ankle. So, um, Other top accident-prone states include Colorado, Hawaii, and North Carolina. And I think that has more to do with the fact that People get outdoors in those states. Colorado, Hawaii, North Carolina, known for their outdoor spaces, hiking areas, you know, that kind of thing. And when you're active in that way, you are more likely to get a sprained ankle or some other uh, accident, have some other type of accident. Some researchers speculate that areas with denser populations could also see more mishaps due to more crowded streets and sidewalks. Uh, The states that are least prone to accidents, North Dakota, West Virginia, and South Dakota. So maybe there is something to that population density thing. I I do not know where Ohio ranks on the list of most accident-prone states. So you'll have to look that up and find that out for yourself. But uh, (laughs) the next time you visit Arizona, uh, just watch yourself because very accident-prone. Uh, there. Speaking of state rankings, according to new sales data, the most popular salad dressing in America is uh, Classic Ranch. 
No big surprise there, I guess. Uh, they broke this down state by state, and uh, Classic Ranch is the most popular salad dressing for 13 states, uh, including Virginia, Georgia, Florida, Wisconsin, Maryland. Catalina is almost uh, as popular as ranch, especially in the Northeast and parts of the Midwest. Thousand Island and Zesty Italian take third and fourth place nationally. And uh, this I thought was uh, kind of interesting. A couple of uh, highlights from this sales data. The number one salad dressing in the state of Texas and in the state of Arizona, raspberry vinaigrette. (laughs) All right. Seems kind of random. Uh, This whole thing seems kind of random, actually. South Dakota cannot seem to decide between coleslaw or creamy poppy seed dressing. That is... Popular. Again, I don't have uh, the Ohio data. Uh, I saw this. I thought it was interesting, but not interesting enough to actually look it up and find out <laughs> where Ohio ranks. So, sorry about that. You'll have to do your own research uh, on that one. Hey, uh, speaking of foods, while we're on this subject, it is almost time for Fat Bear Week. It is the uh, annual event sponsored by the Katmai National Park. In Alaska, the brown bears in that state have been uh, eating salmon and berries and anything they can get their hands on in order to gain weight that they need for a healthy hibernation. And uh, so this is the annual March Madness-style voting system where the biggest Bruin comes out on top. Um, It is... Just an incredible opportunity for people to celebrate the success and survival of these bears, according to park ranger Keith Moore. 747 was the uh, big winner last year, and he is back to defend his crown. Perhaps last year's runner-up 901 will be able to upset 747 for the title. Voting opens tomorrow at fatbearweek.org. So... Get there and uh, vote for your favorite fat bear ahead of the hibernation season. They hibernate from November until May and will lose about one-third of their body weight in that time. So that's why they have to fatten up. Fat Bear Week! Voting begins tomorrow. And lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, it appears that the Taylor Swift effect for the NFL may have already peaked. Sunday night's game between the Jets and Chiefs brought in less viewers than last week's Chiefs-Bears game. Both, of course, featured appearances from Taylor Swift, the reported new girlfriend of Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. Um, Taylor Swift was on hand for both of those games, but uh, this week's Sunday night football brought in just over 20 million viewers, compared to last week's game that brought in over $24 million. So it appears that uh, Taylor Swift mania in the NFL was a short-lived phenomenon. So there you go. Definitely among the first things you need to know this morning, the most uh, interesting, the most important, the most buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. 
Mostly sunny skies expected today with a high reaching the mid-80s. Mostly clear tonight, a low around 60. The Ohio State Highway Patrol is reminding drivers that the educational period is almost over for the state's new distracted driving law, meaning tickets will soon be issued to violators. Since May, the Ohio Highway Patrol says it's given out more than 1,300 warnings for distracted driving. Now the Highway Patrol is prepared to cite those who swipe their screens or watch movies as they drive. Just seeing someone on their phone, maybe sending a text message or watching a video or doing a video call, that is a probable cause for a traffic stop. The law does allow you to talk on the phone if it's on your ear or via Bluetooth. Again, the distracted driving law takes effect this Thursday. ONN's Kevin Landers reporting. The United Way of Hancock County is kicking off their campaign season and has announced their fundraising goal. Our fall campaign season is an exciting time of sharing the impact United Way makes. We hope to raise over $2 million to use on Hancock County's largest community priorities. United Way CEO Angela Dabosky says this year's campaign theme is Difference Makers, emphasizing the fact that each person can make a difference. Get more on the campaign and learn how you can help out in the story on our website. The Finley Family YMCA will be holding a blood drive for the American Red Cross. It'll be held on Thursday from 9 to 3 in the West Pool Lounge at the YMCA at 300 East Lincoln Street. All blood types are needed. The YMCA says people who give blood until October 20th will receive a $15 gift card. Get more on this upcoming blood drive and see other ones in the area in the story on our website. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland has announced a big change for the 2023 induction ceremony. For the first time ever, the event, which is scheduled for November 3rd at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, will be streamed live on Disney+. Plus. This is a switch from recent years as the ceremony has traditionally been pre-taped before a live audience and aired at a later date on HBO. The hall also shared some of the performers expected to take the stage at the ceremony, including Sheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, Willie Nelson, and New Edition. Kate Burdett, ONN News. Don't forget, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. To your health this morning, we often hear about the importance of donating blood, and with good reason. But did you know that donating plasma is also essential to saving lives? Because this first week of October is International Plasma Awareness Week, we are joined by Anita Brickman, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association. Anita, first of all, want to make sure that we establish while blood contains plasma and plasma is the largest component of blood we're talking about two different things here in terms of donating one the other or both that's exactly right chris plasma makes up 55 percent of what's in human blood so it's a straw colored liquid if you take out the red blood cells the white blood cells the platelets other cells that are circulating that's what plasma is it's a lot of water believe it or not as well as salts and enzymes but there are special antibodies and proteins in plasma that are turned into life-saving plasma-derived medicines for people who really need them. The process is different. I would encourage people to find a plasma donation center. And when you go to donate plasma, the plasma is extracted and the red blood cells and all those other components I just talked about are returned to you. So you can actually donate plasma more often than donating blood. And this process is so important because, as I said, 
The plasma goes through a complex manufacturing process to yeah. be turned into special medicines for people with rare diseases and other treatments. So, uh, so again, when you're when you're donating blood, you are not donating plasma, and vice versa. What? Uh, what are some of the uh, treatments uh, that are created from uh, from the use of plasma? I, I guess this is a very broad range of health conditions, right? Oh, absolutely. As I mentioned, there are certain inherited disorders. So if someone has a primary immune deficiency, that can be a child born without a functioning immune system. Antibodies in plasma can be used to bolster that immune system and help them lead a healthy life. If someone has a bleeding disorder like hemophilia or von Willebrand disease or certain inherited neurological conditions, plasma-derived medicines are used to treat those. But the uses are even broader. If someone has experienced shock trauma as in an accident or is a burn victim, they might benefit from a plasma-derived therapy. And even if you get a tetanus shot, that is actually hmm. a specialized immunoglobulin that protects against this infection. And even some people undergoing cancer treatment can get a supportive role in treatment from plasma-derived immunoglobulins. As we know, well, to fight cancer, you are fighting that cancer, but it can also really hurt a person's immune system. And yeah. these plasma protein therapies can help bolster that immune system. So the, the uses are quite diverse. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think most of us know someone who's been treated for cancer, and most everyone has had a tetanus shot at one point or another. So just, again, in those uh, instances, we can see the wide-ranging uh, number of people who can benefit from this. And I understand uh, it also uh, can benefit uh, women going through pregnancy in some circumstances as well, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, there are cases within pregnancy where there where there's a condition called RH incompatibility. That's the big word, but basically what it means is that the red blood cells of the mom and the fetus are not compatible. Hmm. And so in that case, the mother's immune system can see the red blood cells of the fetus as foreign and then develop antibodies which attack them. Now, clearly, that can be detrimental to this fetus, causing severe anemia as well as jaundice in a newborn. People are familiar with jaundice when right. the baby looks yellow. But one injection of this special immunoglobulin for women who have this condition can neutralize that effect and therefore be so beneficial to her baby. So you were touching on this a little bit earlier. I want to go back and kind of expand on this a little bit. How do people donate plasma? What is the difference between donating plasma and donating blood? So obviously, we support both. Uh, a blood donation takes less time. Sometimes if you go donate blood, if you've done it regularly, you can be in and out of there in about 30 minutes or so. Donating plasma takes longer, especially the first time, because there is a robust screening process where you go through uh, a whole health screening, you fill out a questionnaire, you get your uh, blood tested in a little finger prick, just like you do with blood. Mm -hmm. But the process itself called plasmapheresis takes longer. It can take two hours for the first visit, about 90 minutes for subsequent visits. This is because the plasma is being separated from the rest of the blood, the blood cells, the rest of those red cells, et cetera, go back to the person and then also saline to replenish those fluids. Because it takes longer to donate plasma, 
plasma collection centers do compensate people uh, for their time and commitment to hopefully make them regular plasma donors. So it does take longer than blood donation, but similar in so many ways as far as the screening process and what you could expect. Well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, to the uh, donor, it's pretty much the same. It's uh, an IV that goes in uh and and it's extracted that way and and so on so if you've donated blood before the process will be fairly similar right exactly like i said you are in the chair longer and there is the plasmapheresis process Mm -hmm. so the plasma is collected and saline is put back in to replenish people can actually donate plasma two times within a seven-day period. So you can donate far more frequently than blood because so many of the blood components are going back. Yeah, uh, that's... PPTA, our organization, yeah, we we support both blood and plasma donation, so important in different ways. And, And can a person do both? They certainly can. I think it's a matter of looking at the timing. Um, As I mentioned, you can donate plasma more often. If you've also donated blood, clearly you want to make that known to the screener just Mm -hmm. so that you're not donating too often. But yes, absolutely, people can do both and through their lifetimes, and it doesn't matter what blood type you are. Again, Anita Brickman is President Chief Executive Officer of the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association. Again, this is International Plasma Awareness Week. Number of uh, donation centers in our region here. Where do folks learn more? You have a website with uh, answers to all of these questions and more, right? That's right. It's called donatingplasma.org. Donatingplasma.org. You can use the locator there to find a plasma donation center that is right near you. There is information on the importance of donation, what kind of patients benefit from your donation, as well as what you can expect when you walk into a plasma donation center. So all of that is at donatingplasma.org. And we hope people at least explore this as it is much less known than donating blood. Anita, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Well, while we're talking technology this morning, the rapid advancement of drone technology is having a major impact on just about every industry in the United States. Uh, Drones have become indispensable tools driving both innovation uh, innovation and efficiency. And joining us this morning is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Skydio. Do I have that right? Skydio? Is that how you pronounce? Yeah, Skydio. Uh, Skydio. Skydio. Okay. Uh, It's one of the uh, leading U.S. drone manufacturers uh, out there. And uh, Adam Bree is his name. Adam, first of all, thanks very much for uh, being with us. Now, just to kind of uh, lay the groundwork here, you uh, are a kind of a giant in this uh, industry recognized by your alma mater MIT as one of the top innovators uh, in drone technology in fact you were I understand a couple of years ago named to the uh, FAA's drone advisory committee so the long and short of it is you know drones how is this technology helping to uh, transform virtually every industry especially critical industries in the U.S.? Yeah, it, it's a great question. So many people think of drones as cool toys. You know, you might give one to your your child for Christmas and they can right. fly it around and have fun. 
But drones offer the possibility of putting sensors in really important places when they matter most to capture critical data to help people make better decisions. And over the last five or so years, we've seen this technology really start to gain significant adoption in, as you say, many of the core industries that we all depend on. So we have customers in public safety, we have customers in energy utilities, in transportation agencies, in construction companies, in telecommunication companies. And all of these folks are, are finding ways to deploy drones to help them do their jobs better, safer, more efficiently make better decisions. So give us some examples. I mean, you mentioned a number of uh, business categories, industrial categories that are using this technology. What are some examples uh, on how they are deploying this technology? So one of the one of the applications that we're most excited about is public safety. So, you know, imagine a situation where you've got a missing person in a forest. It could take you hours to walk around on the ground and and try to find them. If you can get a drone in the air, you can oftentimes locate them in just a few minutes. Or you might have a situation where you've got a potentially armed suspect loose in a neighborhood. And rather than having an officer on the ground need to search for them, probably gun drawn, you can locate them with a drone. You can see if they're actually armed. You can coordinate a response. And that's the kind of thing that keeps the officer safer. It keeps the community safer. It even keeps the suspect safer. And we're seeing more and more stories like that from our customers uh, you know, where you have a police agency that's operating yeah. with the drone in the front of every car, they can just get real-time aerial intelligence when and when and where they need it. You know, and uh, it strikes me as you uh, to hear you describe that particular scenario, and I would imagine this applies to a number of the other ones uh, as well. Another uh, other examples you could give. Uh, it's not like you could. I mean, you could launch a helicopter and and do an aerial search, but this would be much more efficient and uh, less costly and probably quicker than uh, deploying, you know, other types of aircraft, if you will. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And we see the same story with many of our customers. The competing legacy technologies are oftentimes crude helicopters or really heavy machinery that you'd use like a bucket truck or something mm -hmm. to put something in the right place. And, you know, a helicopter can cost around $1,000 an hour to operate. It's noisy. Uh, it can be very dangerous. Uh, so because of that, helicopters are used in just a tiny fraction of the instances where they could be helpful. You know, it's only the largest police agencies in the world that can afford to have even a single helicopter. Yeah. And they have to use it pretty sparingly, whereas a drone is the kind of thing uh, that you can, you know, you could literally have one in the, the trunk of every of every car uh, so that when you need it, it's it's just there at a, at a second's notice. So your company, Skydio, recently unveiled uh, a new enterprise drone, as, as you call it. Tell us about the technology that is powering this latest generation of drones. What can they do uh, that is you know, above and beyond what previous generations could do. So the X10, which we just launched, we're, we're really, really excited about. It's got the best sensors ever in a drone this size. So it's got incredibly high-resolution cameras. They can see incredible detail uh, from a pretty long standoff distance. But then it pairs that with groundbreaking artificial intelligence. So many people are familiar with chat GPT and generative artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. X10 really has that technology built in at the core. We bet very big on computer vision and machine learning when we started the company 10 years, 10 years ago. And we've now gotten to the point where our drones essentially have the skills of an expert pilot built in. 
So with most other products, you need to have an expert pilot there on the ground. They need to be carefully watching out to avoid obstacles and flying very complex, precise flight paths to capture the data that you might care about. With the X-10, all of that stuff is built in. So the, the goal here is rather than the operator needing to adapt themselves to the drone, the drone adapts themselves to the operator, and it just becomes the kind of tool that every frontline inspector at an energy utility can be comfortable using to, to get information that they need when and where they need it. So it really makes it accessible to, to more people uh, being able to deploy, deploy these in, in more situations without, say, somebody have to being specially trained and, and such on how to operate the, these type, this type of equipment. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, one of the analogies that we think about is the early days of the computer industry. Like it used to be everybody, if you wanted to use a computer 40 years ago, you had to be an expert programmer. And as computers got smarter and as they became to be defined more and more by software, and we got software applications that specialized for different applications, computers have become tools that all of us use almost every second without even thinking about it. Um, and, And that's kind of the goal with what we're doing with drones. You make the thing smart, you make it easy to use. You can just use it in more places and, and, and have more positive impact. What do you say to those who are, and you'll always have people who are fearful of new technology, but I know you've heard uh, the, the questions, you know, they've got drones in the sky, they're keeping an eye uh, on everything, they're seeing everything, and now you're adding AI to the mix, which also makes some people nervous. What do you say to those who are concerned about the, the ways in which all of this technology is being used? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked. And I, I think, uh, you know, the, the basic position here is there are definitely concerns. You know, there's potential misuse and abuse. I'd say a few things. So we've taken a really proactive stance on this as a company. We've launched a set of engagement and responsible use principles for all of our products. Uh, we have a specific set of principles that, that we think make sense for use in public safety, things like protecting civil liberties, respecting, uh, you know, community engagement, uh, operating with a lot of transparency. So in law enforcement, the most successful drone programs operate with an extremely high degree of transparency. Citizens, you know, there's daily flight logs published. Citizens can see when and where and why drones are being flown. And that kind of transparency builds trust because when people see what's actually being done with the technology, they see yeah. that it's uh, incredible stuff that, you know, just keeps everybody safer. The other thing that's important to understand is that this is regulated technology. So just like the FAA regulates uh, crude air travel, they regulate the use of drones. So one example of this, there's a, a rule called remote ID, which requires every drone to broadcast essentially a digital license plate. Um, so it's a unique identifier that enables you to track that particular drone. The drone needs to be registered so you can associate it back with the operator. And that's a really important thing for accountability. You know, as a drone manufacturer, if, if somebody's flying a drone somewhere they shouldn't and doing something that they shouldn't be doing with it, yeah. they need to be held accountable. And remote ID is one of the mechanisms that enables that. Again, these are uh, far from the types of drones that your nephew might have uh, just to play around with. They are really incredible devices and, again, continuing to advance every day just as uh, everything in the electronics and technology space is. Uh, Again, uh, Adam Bree is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Skydio. Where do we get more information about all of this? You have a website where folks can learn more, right? Exactly. If you're interested to learn more, you can just go to skydio.com. That's S-K-Y-D-I-O.com. You can learn more about our, you know, the industries that we serve, what our customers are doing with the products, and, uh, and also get to learn more about the technology and the products themselves. 
Adam, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. First up, a follow-up in the uh, broken news this morning to a story that we had uh, some weeks ago. McDonald's and Wendy's have prevailed in a lawsuit accusing them of deceiving hungry diners by exaggerating the size of their burgers. According to Reuters, in a decision on Saturday, U.S. District Judge Hector Gonzalez found no proof, no proof that the fast food chains delivered smaller burgers than advertised. Uh, He went on to say that there was no proof that the plaintiff in the case, Justin Chimente, had even seen deceptive ads for the Big Mac or the bourbon bacon cheeseburger. Uh, In a 19-page decision, you remember this story, right? Uh, They were being sued by this guy who said that the burgers were smaller than advertised. In a 19-page decision, the judge said the efforts of the fast food joints to make their burgers look appetizing was no different than any business, uh, any company's use of visually appealing images to foster positive associations with their uh, products. Basically, he said, everybody does this. It is part and parcel advertising. Uh, in his lawsuit, Mr. Chimente said that Wendy's also inflated the amount of toppings it uses, to which the judge replied, just because they don't give you as many toppings as you would prefer doesn't make it deceptive. Basically, uh, the judge uh, said, get out of here, man. Come on, man get this so anyway i wanted to follow up on that story this is an interesting uh piece from the newswire uh a man who defrauded fedex of over four hundred thousand dollars over the course of several years claiming that he had lost 67 packages through the delivery service is now behind bars the texas man was indicted on nine counts of mail fraud Um, The U.S. Attorney's Office said in a news release last week, uh, each count carries up to 20 years in prison, and again, nine counts, um, and a $250,000 fine. So you do the math, he's going to be in jail for a long time and have a big fine to pay. This is the story. The uh, 58-year-old man from Austin filed reimbursement claims on 67 packages that he claimed were lost by FedEx between September of 2019 and October of 2022. What he did was, this was his scheme, he deposited packages at FedEx drop boxes with fake information using the physical address of the mail, mail forwarding service and a fictional name for the sender. Uh, then he created the appearance, uh, so he created the appearance of sending packages from Arizona, California, Mississippi, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and even Washington State. And then he would claim the packages had never been delivered, but he put fake addresses on them, so of course they hadn't been delivered. Uh, 
So he would claim that the uh, packages were lost, and even though there was little to no value of what was in the packages, he would say, he would claim that the value of the contents exceeded $8,000 when he filed the reimbursement claims. In all, he scammed FedEx out of more than $400,000. FedEx paid the man uh, the on the claims and uh so that was that was the scam but they eventually caught on and uh the defendant was arrested and appeared in court last week according to the uh, news release here what i want to seems very elaborate uh to uh come up with this uh, scam you know for fedex to lose packages when FedEx loses packages all by themselves. <laughs> Have you sent package through FedEx recently? You don't need to come up with this elaborate scam to get FedEx to lose a package. They do that just fine all by themselves. I don't know. $400,000 they scammed them out of. Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, the Marine Corps, the United States Marine Corps, actually making the broken news uh, this morning, because it says here in this story that members of the Marine Corps will see uniform regulations relaxed due to a shortage of camouflage. <laughs> that's that's the latest shortage that we have and a shortage of camouflage. Uh, that problem is going to stay with us for the fall of 2024 when the manufacturer can fill the backlog that has been created after covid, according to a statement from Commandant. General Eric Smith, we are we are going to get this fixed, but it's going to take a little patience. Squadrons are thereby authorized to use flame-resistant organizational gear or desert-colored camis instead. Marine recruits usually receive three woodland uniforms and two desert ones, but recent reports indicate that recruits are now receiving two woodland uniforms and a single desert one. Um... Yes, and they're they're getting very aromatic with fewer uh, sets of uh, of uniforms. The desert camis appear to be out of stock on the uh, exchange website as well, where uh, Marines buy their uniforms. They don't have them in stock either. <laughs> wow, relaxing their uniform regulations. And that's something that the Marine Corps just does not do, but a shortage of camouflage figure. The world's like now this is rather disturbing. The world's largest humanoid robot factory is set to be built in Salem, Massachusetts. According to the report, Agility Robotics, known for creating robots that walk like humans, uh, the uh, human-centric multi-purpose Robot is designed to work safely in warehouses and distribution centers. Now, what can be dangerous uh, jobs? The company says they hope the their factory will be able to produce more than 10,000 robots a year. Isn't this how, like, every bad science fiction movie starts? <laughs> with, a, with a factory cranking out 10,000 humanoid robots a year? What I want to know is, will the factory that builds the robots be automated, or will there be there be humans building the humanoid robots? I, 
Anyway, it was like a uh, bad episode of the Six Million Dollar Man or something. They, uh, anyway, um, factory set to open later this year. This is kind of crazy. A Chicago woman is making history after setting a world record for the oldest person to skydive. She is 104 years old. Dorothy Hoffner set the record over the weekend after landing on the ground at Skydive Chicago Airport. Um, She's a lifelong uh, resident of Chicago, and this is not her first skydive. She made her first dive out of a perfectly good airplane at the age of 100 four years ago so on her 100 uh so at the age of 104 i don't know if it was her birthday or not 104 years and now the oldest person to skydive because i guess you figure you've lived long enough anyway jumping out of an airplane at age of 100 why not had a good life <laughs> i just don't get it i did not something that I would ever do. And uh, finally, in the broken news this morning, because there always has to be a story out of Florida, a central Florida man found himself on the wrong side of the law after making nonstop 911 calls. It all began when deputies responded to a run-of-the-mill neighbor dispute last Monday. Upon arrival, they encountered a 56-year-old gentleman barking orders at the officers as if they were his personal squad. But the real trouble started when the man decided to treat 911 like his own personal hotline. The deputies, who were not amused, warned him that his misuse of the emergency line might lead to consequences. Unfazed, he declared, You want to charge me with abuse of 911? Go for it! So guess what happened next? They went for it. <laughs> they charged him and he is now in jail. <laughs> go for it. All right, then. You got it. We will. There you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When the rumors are flying, getting the facts matters more than ever. At WFIN, we're your trusted source and will always present the story only after verifying the information with trusted sources. This is WFIN News Director Matt Demchek trusting us to present just the facts when covering events impacting Finley and Hancock County. You can depend on us to get the story right every time on social media, 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and at 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. October is National Pizza Month. And as Americans, we love pizza so much so that three out of four of us, 74% of Americans would eat pizza for any meal of the day. (laughs) Any meal of the day. This is according to a new survey of 5,000 adults. Uh, 25%, one in four of us, actually love pizza so much that we would serve it at our wedding, according to this survey, which actually is not that crazy of an idea. My wife and I were just at a wedding uh, about a month ago, and that's what they served. It was a pizza bar, wood-fired pizza bar. It was delicious, absolutely delicious. My uh, youngest son uh, getting married next year, and he and his lovely bride-to-be are talking about doing the same thing. It was really cool. Um. The average person, it says here, can eat five slices by themselves in a single sitting. 
And on average, we eat, uh, we have pizza three times a month. So if you do the math, three times a month times five slices per sitting, that is 180 slices total or a full-size suitcase worth of pizza every year. <laughs> Think about that. 100 sli- uh, 180 slices in a single year. Now, when it comes to what we prefer on our pizza, we are pretty much traditionalists. The top toppings on the pizza. Well, this is kind of interesting. Um and talk about uh, five slices per sitting, three pizzas uh, per month. If five slices isn't enough to polish off an entire pizza, uh, 18% of those in the survey say they prefer eating their leftover pizza cold. They don't even reheat it. So I've done that occasionally, but uh, I think I much prefer reheating. But 18% prefer, actually prefer their uh, pizza cold. When it comes to toppings... We are pretty traditional, not really adventurous. The uh, favorite toppings nationwide, pepperoni, sausage, mushroom, and Parmesan Parmesan cheese. So not a big uh, surprise there, although there are some outliers. Um, In Vermont, for example, onion is the top preferred topping. Not that that's weird, but that it would be number one, I thought was kind of interesting. Um... In uh, New Hampshire, they prefer a slice with blue cheese and buffalo sauce. In Washington State, they swap out the tomato sauce with pesto. So, kind of interesting. By the way, Ohio's top topping, according to the survey, sausage. So, that's number one in the state of Ohio. The worst pizza toppings, according to the survey, avocado, (laughs) eggplant, I don't think I've ever ordered an eggplant pizza. Uh, Pineapple, which opens up a big debate. Pineapple on pizza. Pineapple uh, rated among the worst toppings. And fried chicken, which is kind of interesting. I I know that's, you can get chicken on your pizza, but I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't, I'm a meat lover's pizza kind of guy, but generally it's the pepperoni, the sausage, bacon, uh, hamburger ham um not big on chicken on my yeah pizza but anyway and a uh friend of mine we had this uh, asked me this question the other day is it a slice of pizza or is it a piece of pizza what is it i think it depends on how it is cut if they are in triangles those are slices if they're in squares those are pieces so, anyway oh and by the way Uh, When it comes to the type of pizza that we most frequently eat, 30% uh, will go for the frozen pizza, you know, that you get in the store, cook at home. 26% will eat pizza in a restaurant and 16% will have delivery. So pizza delivery. So, which I would have guessed that would have been much higher than just 16%. So kind of interesting there. There you go. Everything you wanted to know about Americans and pizza for National Pizza Month. Time to find out what's happening at the Findlay YMCA. Summer may be over, but uh, kids and 
Adults alike, for that matter, can all stay active with upcoming programs uh, through the uh, Findlay YMCA. Jerry McNamee is with us in the studio this morning. Jerry, good to see you once again. Uh, you're actually uh, wrapping up some of the uh, late summer, early uh, autumn stuff. You've got uh, soccer uh, wrapping yeah, up and um, still a few things going on there. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, we're finishing up our, our soccer programming right now. we got about three weeks left. But right now we're in the throes of... Um, our bask our youth basketball league registration mm-hmm. um and so that registration is going to end uh the last day to register is next monday okay um and people can register online or or stop into either branch and so it's a uh, it's exciting to to have that we our basketball league is is a school-based league it's it's county-wide mm-hmm. um so kids that register through the ymca will be placed on teams from their local schools as much as we can and we'll okay. have teams from all the way from from Upper Sandusky to North Baltimore to to Riverdale to to Finley proper and and St Mike's and and everywhere else in Macomb, um, we'll end up having about six hundred six hundred and thirty kids playing wow. our basketball league. So it's it's a it's a good time. So that, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then uh, if uh, kids are not into basketball, there are other uh, sports options as well, right? Oh, there's we offer a ton at the YMCA. Um, we have right now. Yesterday was our first day of swim team practice. We offer okay. so that that swim team. But if you're just starting there, uh, swim lessons will start up here shortly. We have our new session starting short uh, very very soon. Um, do a really good job with our, our gymnastics program. Just kind of that, you know, you don't want to go out and spend a whole bunch of money trying to get to see if your kid's interested in it. Right. That's the, that's the biggest thing is that so many of these sports, uh, can start to add up. The cost can add up quickly. This is a great way to, you know, introduce kids to different sports, get them involved in a number of things, see what, uh, you know, piques their interest. All the way down to, to our parent child classes. Um, I mean, we have tiny tot soccer, tiny tot basketball, and those are parent-child classes, and those are designed for ages two to four years old. Okay. Um, we look at it more as a basketball or soccer as a vehicle to have mom and dad just to have fun with their kid, mm-hmm. uh, build that relationship, and, and introduce kids to sports that sports are fun, running around and, and playing and, and getting to know other kids and, and building that team and, and camaraderie, and, and that's the important part of what sports is. Not, not so much the winning and losing, while that's right. – that has its points, but it, mm-hmm. it's not our focus. And yeah. so we, we look at being inclusive. We look at having kids play. We look at physical fitness and, and character development. That's our, that's our main focus through right. sports. We just use sports as a vehicle to help us accomplish and those goals. And to the extent uh, that winning and losing is a thing, it's uh, about teaching kids how to win and lose with dignity and the right attitude and all of that. Uh, we call it the pursuit of winning. Um, that, that just having that pursuit, that, that learning the work ethic behind it, um, Mm -hmm. you're not always going to, you're not always going to win, but having that, that, that drive, that work, that, that being part of a team, not letting your teammates down and, and playing and, and and finding out a a sport you enjoy. Um, you know, I have a, I have a six-year-old son and, and Liam, I, I never played soccer growing up. It wasn't big in the area that I grew up in. Um, played football all the way through collegiately and, and ended up and soccer's not my thing, but my six year old son is, is a diehard soccer person. So I'm kind of learning that on the fly, um, <laughs> about what we need to do there. Um, but so many people are, but he, yeah. he found out he enjoyed that by, by, by just playing around with friends and that's what his friends wanted to do. And that's how he enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of fun to see him grow every season and, and to have that and, I ask him after every game, you know, hey, how'd it go? Well, we won. 
and and in my head you go ask a kid on another team and they'll tell you that they won mm-hmm. so i think all of our our u8 and and our u8 soccer teams are undefeated right now if you ask the kids which is <laughs> which is just that's great for us absolutely yeah um, so I'm looking at the, uh, the webpage and you've got a whole rundown of all of the youth, uh, programs You mentioned mm-hmm. soccer, uh, actually will have in the wintertime an indoor, uh, program. Our, our indoor soccer, our, our, our U5 and U6 happen in this kind of early fall. Um, that'll be indoor. And then we do our, our U8 and U10, uh, will start up in after January. Okay. Um, it's, it's. It's indoor soccer because it happens inside, but it's more, we use futsal balls, and so it's more of a futsal type game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's five aside uh, with a goalie. We kind of introduce the goalie, but it's a futsal ball is heavier, it's denser, so it, it requires a lot more foot skills rather than just kind of okay. passing and, and clearing out a zone. So it, we emphasize touches and, and ball control with that. And with our, our small gym in the East Gym, it Futsal works really well. Yeah. Um, and so we, our emphasis there is, is just trying to get kids more touches and, and playing on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we come up on uh, the wintertime, we've got volleyball uh, programs mm-hmm. and, uh, well, you mentioned uh, gymnastics and, and some of those other things yeah. too. So. Um, gymnastics. And then our, our, out at the East Branch, our big one, um, in partnership with the University of Finley, um, tennis. And that ranges, and that's a great adult sport. Um, especially for people that are just looking to get into something new. Um, it's very cardiovascular. Um, and then I would be remiss if I, if I didn't realize that pickleball mm-hmm. is also out there at the East Branch. Right. Um, we have 10 pickleball courts out there, um, and, and the people can come out. They, they can play all the time. Pickleball is a great community sport. Um, you just need a paddle, and, and, and we kind of supply everything else. But... Those the pickleball community is very warm, very welcoming, and and will take anybody on and and teach you how to play the game. Um, yeah, it's a if you've never experienced pickleball before, it's kind of like a stand up version of ping pong, but that is but it's it's active and and during the course of the day, those, those courts out at the East Branch are are always booked up because of of tennis and pickleball. Yeah, and it's and it's great to see people and and from tennis and 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 pickleball from ages four to to ninety five. They're out there playing. They're active, and and to see the friendships that they form, and and mm-hmm. especially in our our senior programming, like to have those guys, you know, find friends and be active and be healthy is is, yeah. is awesome. Um, speaking of uh, sports for grownups and programs mm-hmm. for grownups, uh, you've got basketball for adults. Uh, we as do. Well, um, that'll start up in around January. Registration will begin up around the uh, after Thanksgiving. But okay. our adult basketball league, we play on Sunday afternoon, Sunday night. Um, it's form your own team, uh, bring your own team, and then. But we take care of everything else. One thing that's neat about YMCA sports is is we don't charge admission we don't uh there's no more uniform costs you don't have to go out and buy the the practice uniform or the uh, the uh anything else so it's a once you pay the fee it's all inclusive so mm-hmm. um for our adult basketball league you know a sticker shock of six hundred dollars but that's it you don't have to chime in twenty dollars right. a game for referees and that's for the team that's for the team yeah so. um we handle all the league logistics and and same with our youth sports um if you're a, a community member or a non-member of the ymca and it's eighty-eight dollars, but there's no more. You get your you get your uniform. Mm-hmm. We take care of, of most of the equipment. Uh, the referees are YMCA employees. Um, there's no admission charged, 
So grandma and grandpa, little brothers and sisters, they can come uh, for free and, and watch games and do that kind of stuff. Um, and so rather than, you know, being charged $2 admission right. every time you want to come to a game, that exactly. adds up over the course of the season. Yeah. Um, and, and so we kind of take care of that. And with the basketball league, with the area schools, we work with them. So most of the practices actually happen at your area school. Okay. So if you're, in, if you're at Macomb or, or Liberty Benton, your practices will happen out at out the there. school, yeah. and and your games will take place at the Y or other various locations. But yeah, um, really convenient, actually. Um, and that uh, answers the uh, question that we're going to ask: Do you have to be a member of the Y to uh, sign up for these uh, programs? Uh, you do not have to be a member of the Y. Um, it makes it the value of, of membership to the YMCA is great. It gets the whole family active, mm-hmm. um, and and it does decrease the cost. Uh, right. It offers a lot more to the facility. Um, I know my family. I have a six and a and a, a four year old. We on the, during the winter times, just going to swim and open swim, and being able to use right. the facility that way is great. And and having our, our youth sports programs or, or at that reduced cost to help out a lot. And, and yeah. my wife enjoys the 6 a.m. workouts and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, again, we want to highlight all of this stuff because even though summer is over, everybody in the family can still stay active uh, through the uh, programs and the facilities, the uh, Findlay YMCA. We've got a link up for more information uh, so you can uh, get the details at goodmornings.net. And again, Jerry McNamee from the uh, Findlay YMCA with us this morning. Jerry, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program, of course. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. Go and check us out online at goodmornings.net. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. And now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.